モーニングプロジェクトプレゼンツ Shidoshi. This is Miranda Sweet Shop. How you doing? This is a podcast where I ramble, and uh, you listen to it. Why? I still don't know, but you do. It's been a while. How are you doing? Are, are you okay? Have you been feeling okay? Have you been getting enough exercise? Getting enough water every day? Not too much junk food? Stuff like that? Well, so... I originally started this podcast kind of like to fill in while Warning was on yet another of its extended vacations. Um, then Warning came back, and my thought was I didn't want to step on Warning's return, you know, by doing another podcast. And then, um, well, because th- th- my, my thinking was we put a new episode of Warning out, and then if I put a Miranda Sweet Shop out very, very soon after that, if somebody had not updated their iTunes or their Zunes or whatever and gotten the new warning yet, they wouldn't have been getting this. And, you know, I I know my place in the world. I know that podcast is way more important than this is. So, um, so then I got busy, you know, going to GDC and, and Japan, all that kind of fun stuff. But, but we're here. We're back. Uh, I'm back, not we're. Well, you, we, we are here. You are listening. I am speaking. We are back, right? Um, man, so you know what? I think this, this episode is going to be a continuation of Japan. That seems to be already popular, right? People, the kids, the kids love hearing about the Japans. Uh, but there's other stuff going on. Um, so like I said, I went to GDC. And that was interesting because that was my first time that I ever been to GDC. And... You know, me being in the games industry, quote-unquote, I've been very used to E3 and how E3 works. And E3 is a very media-centric event. Uh, it isn't just media, but it's game companies going there to show off their games 
to either get press for those games or to get um, support for those games being in retail, right? So th- that's the whole point of E3, is we are game companies. This is what we've got right now. We're coming up very soon. This is what we want you to hopefully buy or talk about or whatever, right? But GDC, GDC is the development side, you know, because E3 is the producer side. Or not producer, I'm sorry, publisher. The publishers are there, and they may bring in the developers to try to promote their, those projects, but it is still very much a, a publisher-centric event. Whereas GDC are developers. So you get very interesting situations where, you know, at, at, at E3, you may be talking to a developer, but they've got media reps there, they've got reps from the publisher, they've got what they can and can't say, they're promoting a specific project, so they want to talk about that certain project, and all that kind of stuff. Whereas GDC, they're going there to, to listen to or interact with other developers so it's a more laid-back kind of atmosphere. Um, now, me being media, being there for media was very strange, and I didn't exactly like the event because it was very hard to cover from a media standpoint. It's kind of like, how, how do I write about this, you know? Like, I had fun going to the panels and listening to the panels, but most of the time during the panels... I had to sit there, my laptop open, taking notes and a little recording device next to me and then listen to the recording again later and stuff like that. Uh, so it was a lot of like, how do I turn this hour conversation into a a 600-word piece, you know? Um, E3, I go there, I play a game, I spend 10 minutes writing about my thoughts on it, I'm done. It's very simple to understand. It's not quite that easy, but it's, it's easy to understand. So I went there. I had a really interesting time. Um, I met the developer or the creator of the Harvest Moon series. I met the creator of Gauntlet, a, a beloved game from my childhood. Uh, I talked to the the man in charge of uh, a lot of the creative aspects of things like uh, Rules of, Rule of Rose and Tulip and uh, Little King Story. Um, I talked to a lot of people, so it was it was it was it was fun. It was interesting, uh, but I just I had not fully known what to expect going into it, and that was also my only my second time of ever being in San Francisco, so that was kind of kind of fun and interesting. Um, the part of San Francisco I was at, and I believe it's like Union Plaza or Union Park, something like that. Um, I really liked it because it it kind of reminded me of the things I like about Japan and also kind of the fun aspects I found in Chicago when I went there is where you have a city that is very walkable. Um, at least a part of San Francisco I was in, and I have been told that other parts are not quite new. It's nice. Uh, it was a lot of, here's my hotel, here's a convention center. And then otherwise I just walk everywhere. Um, walk to get food walk to go to shops, you know, it's, it's a very walkable city, whereas Los Angeles is not at all a walkable city. And, and I, I like, I like that idea. I like that idea of, of, that's what I liked about Japan was, um, and I'm going to get in Japan later anyway, but I liked about Japan, the fact that I could get on a train and I could get off 
reasonably at any stop. Of course, there were stops that were small or whatever, but if any kind of decently sized stop, and there would be a lot of interesting things to see and do around that stop. Like, life grew up around train stations because that was a major form of transportation, you know. So it only made sense that if you're going to build a, a big store or a fancy restaurant or things like that, to building it closer to the train station makes far more sense because you'll get more traffic coming in, right? So I like that idea of life like that. So, um, What else is going on? I did go to Japan for a week, and I'll be talking about that. That was a fun time. Um, so my last Miranda Sweet Shop was about depression, and I was not expecting the reaction to that podcast that I got. Uh, I got a, actually I got a lot of people saying like, "Wow, that was so brave of you to do," or "That was that was you know," and I was just like, "I just got on and hit record and talked about stuff." You know, I, I personally I did not think that what I was saying was anything that interesting or or, or not necessarily interesting, but that daring. You know, like I, I guess I didn't trust me. Okay. Of all the things I could talk about myself and tell you about on this podcast, that was nowhere near the um, uh, questionable level of embarrassment or, or TMI that I could get into, trust me. So I didn't think much of it, but people had really great reactions to it. Um, and I don't always read all of your email or comments on this show, and... What I want you to understand is I read, personally read, everything that I get. And if I don't read it on the show, that doesn't mean I didn't read it. It's just that I didn't, maybe I felt like it was too personal to read on the show or that it just isn't going to fit or, or whatever. But w- whatever you send me, I, I do read at some point. Um, so I really appreciate like all the great feedback I, I got uh, from that episode. That was really, really nice. And like I said, it was very interesting to, to, to hear the reactions I got to it. Uh, and, you know, I think that depression is a topic that, well, as I said, it's one of those things that far more of us have to deal with than we admit to, and it's one of those kind of taboo things. You know, it's, it's, it's just so weird. It's it's so weird in life, like, how things work. Like, just this whole thing recently, and I don't want to get into politics about, you know, liberal versus conservative, Republican versus Democrat, all that kind of stuff, but... We're going through this thing right now about, you know, women's health, and it's just so ridiculous, the conversations that go on sometimes. And it, it, it's like, you know, like Rush Limbaugh and everything, and, and oh, you know, oh, she's a slut for taking so much birth control and things like that. And it's, it's just so ridiculous, these stupid arguments we get into. We just, like... Oh, I don't even know how to explain it. We 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 find dumb things to worry about. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like such a simple thing to say, but it it really is. Like of of everything going on, and 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 you know, I've read this too. Like, oh well, Obama brought this up by making people have to cover the birth control. You know, like really, like like that's really what we we are, are worried about. And I am not 
uh, religious. I, I have a very deep belief in God, but I'm not a religious person myself. But, like, really, you know, it, and, and, the, and the problem, it's, it's a problem with anything, is, is that a majority of people who are religious are wonderful people. And they aren't extremists, and they just, all they want is what all the rest of us want. They want to live their life, hopefully be happy, hope that their family is happy and healthy, and, and that's what they, you know, they want to make this world a better place when they leave it. Like, that's what a majority of us want. But then we get into these stupid little arguments about things that are ridiculous, and I, I don't even remember now how I got on this subject in the first place. Like, like what did I say to start this conversation? But it's just, it's just, like, the stupid little things that we go after, you know? Like, really? Like, like, this whole thing in Arizona where they're saying they want to be able to fire you if, if you're taking birth control for non-medical reasons. And that's a very oversimplification of the situation, yes. But you have this woman representative who is pushing this, and it's kind of like, how can you screw your fellow women like this? But we get into these ideas that we have to... It has to be us versus them, you know? Just so often, it has to be us versus them. And as, you know, in America, that's, that's, we're very bad about that. We're very bad. As proud as I am of, of America and as wonderful as I think it is in so many ways, that is absolutely one of our downsides, is that we always have to make it us versus them. You know, even back to, like, McCarthyism and, and you know... The Russians and, uh, you know, are you a communist? Like, like, it's just, it's so ridiculous. But I don't know how I got onto that. I don't know. Um, I have been drinking a little bit of alcohol, and this is something I actually want to bring up. Uh, not alcohol, but one of my things recently is I have been trying to get off of my addiction. I have an addiction. Um... It is not drugs, it is not tobacco, it is not pornography, it's not even alcohol. Like, I drink alcohol, but I drink it very, very moderately. Very moderately. So, um, because, alright, side story here. Uh, when I was growing up, I had a father who was an alcoholic, um, and I say again, like, I, I started to think, because people were responding to my depression, episode is like how much of this did I say you know but but so I, I had a father who had a problem with alcohol and um at this point I've come to be our relationship is okay now but our relationship was really strained at least for me personally because it was a very very bad situation when I was very young and, and growing up and my parents got divorced <clears throat> when I was very early uh if I have already said this on the podcast already excuse me but you know whatever uh so I had this deep fear of alcohol growing up and I didn't take my first drinks until um well I mean I drank a little bit when I was 21 but from there like I would say between the ages of like 21 and 24 or so uh, I probably had maybe five drinks total in those years and that was it because <clears throat> I just I did not want to get into it because it scared me like seeing what it could do to people so maybe because of that, I never really got super duper into alcohol. But okay, 
So no drugs, no smoking, no, no alcohol, whatever. Uh, my addiction is Coke Zero. Yes. The cola. Uh, you know, I, I grew up drinking cola. And uh, I, I switched to diet at a certain point, you know, thanks to... Um, well, I could never drink Diet Coke. It's just disgusting. But then, like, C2 came along, for anybody who remembers C2... Uh, and I drank C2, and then Zero came along, and I drank Zero, and now I can't drink regular Coke, because it's just way too sweet and whatever. But So my addiction is Coke Zero, you know, like, that's my addiction. And and I'm trying to get off it, because I, like anything, you know, you, you know it's not good for your body. But it's just so tasty, you know? It's so damn tasty. But what's funny is, so I'm at GDC for that week, and I drink very little of it there. Drink a lot of water or uh, green tea and stuff like that. I get back, and I... I you know, now when I drink Coke Zero, it's the taste is kind of different to me. It's very heavy, and it's very like, wow, this is super strong. So I think I'm getting over it, but I'm I'm trying to get past it. Like right now, as I record this, because I want to drink a little bit of rum, I have a Coke Zero to mix with it. But I'm trying to get over that and get back to drinking water and green tea and stuff, like things that are healthier for me. Yes. So because like I used to be super skinny. Super skinny. Like, I'm 5'7", and when I was all throughout high school, I was 128 pounds, which, if you don't know the pound scale, that's, like, super skinny for that kind of size. Um, <clears throat> and then got out of out of high school, and I got put on just a little bit more weight, but not too much, and I was at a really, really great size for me, than what I thought. Uh, but then, stupid play, I get this job at Play Magazine, and I go from having a job where... Every day I'm up and I'm running around and I'm very active in my job because of what it required. And all of a sudden I'm sitting at a desk all day long using a computer. And it just, that killed me. And so I put on a little bit more weight than I should have. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a fatty, you know, nothing against anybody who is, but I, I am I, not super duper, but I have a little bit more weight than I should right now. And I'm very, very sensitive about that, yes. So one of the things to try to improve my lifestyle is to try to get off of Coke Zero. And I'm trying. I'm doing pretty good. Because um, before it was like, it was murder. Just like, you know, go out a day and like, man, I'm that, that caffeine withdrawal and the headaches and stuff. Anybody who says that caffeine's not a drug that you're addicted to is completely wrong because you do. Um, but yeah, so that's another thing in my life right now. Wow, 18 minutes in. Oh my God, I'm sorry. I'm not mean to ramble so much. You know what? Let's read an email. Let's read an email from somebody. Uh, I had one I was going to read, but then I... <laughs> it's, so I actually edited this show because I started reading it. And then I got to the point in the email where it said, please don't read this. And I'm like, oh. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. So now I don't even know if I've said this in the show. So forgive me if I'm repeating myself. That's a big part of the show. I know. But <laughs> I don't remember now where I edited it at. I just want to let you know that if you do email me in, I read everything, but I don't always read on the show. So, I probably already said that. But anyway, this is uh, East of Eastside says, Hey, Shidoshi, listening to your podcast. I'm 36 years old. I just want to say that video games were the biggest piece of effing S waste of my life. You're a cool and real soul. Have a great personal journey. Take care, East of Eastside. So, 
I was always a collector of games. Because, and, I, and it's, I spoke about this on another podcast recently. I've done so many that I don't remember which one. I, oh, no. It was Double Plus Good Games Podcast. That's what it was. We were talking about game collections. And so growing up, I was very, very bad about having game collections. You know, I was the kind of person where I bought a game, I did not want to get rid of it. And I loved having that shelf. You know, the shelf, the shelf of games where like, you see it like, wow, I've got games, you know. I've got games for this system. This is awesome. I want a game. I look at my shelf. There are games there. I can pick a game, you know, and play it. That's going to be sweet. Not, not these two or three games that I have to play over and over again. I have a shelf. I have a collection, you know. I don't have games for my console. I don't have a library. I have a collection. I was a collector. And part of that came from the fact that I was horrifically spoiled as a child. Um, my family wasn't rich, but my dad had a decent amount of money from his job. And my parents, as I said, split early. So my dad, to make up to it for me, to me, uh, he bought me stuff. So I had stuff all the time, you know. And birthday would come along, I'd get like this whole stack of Transformers or games or whatever once games came along. So I was very spoiled. So I was used to having things. And that's just the way life worked, you know. And, and at some point I did realize the fact that I had so much stuff, and so they getting something new, I didn't always appreciate it. It's like, okay, yeah, I got this new thing finally, so what's the next new thing I'm going to get? Instead of appreciating what I just got, it was always like, okay, what's next? And I did get to the point of, of being a collector, and I don't know that I would say video games are a waste of my life, but you do kind of wonder sometimes, it's like, wow, I spent, you know, I mean, Dark Souls, Persona 4, Persona 3, stuff like that. I love the hours I spend with those games, but you do also think like, man, I spent 40 hours playing this game. What do I have to show for it? You know, like what, what have I come out of playing that having now? Nothing. Yeah, an experience, sure, but, but not a whole much else. And especially if you buy games on day one, which I absolutely do not do anymore. Except very, very rare exceptions. Um, you think about all the money to you sink into video games and, and where it goes. Um, so I guess it's just like getting over being a collector, you know. That took me a while to get over. And I just had to go to a point, and I think I've talked about this before, but I would set myself a goal. Like I would say, if I have 40 PS2 games, which I have more than that, but just an example. If I have 40 PS2 games, I'm going to sit down and I've got to get rid of 10 of them. And that really kind of makes you think about what games you are really meaningful to you and which you really don't care about at the end of the day. But the problem, too, coming in that is the fact that, you know, the problem with video games is if you buy games and you're like, man, I've got way too many games, I need to get rid of some of these, you think about, like, what are your options? Like, I take these to GameStop and maybe get a dollar for each of them, you know? Or I could just give them away for free and lose money on shipping, or I could just keep them. And that, that's, that's the thing, is, is that's one of the problems to getting over that addiction, like we were just talking about, is that 
it doesn't always make sense to do that, you know? It's It makes more sense just to keep the freaking things because sometimes at the point you're ready to get rid of them, they're just worth so little money. So it's it's starting early. It's not buying them in the first place. And I know the feeling. I know that feeling of, man, I'm at this store and this game's only $8. I've got to have it, you know? But anyway. um, So... Japan. I was thinking about getting back to Japan. Oh, you know, before I do. Before I do. So I, I've had two new portable systems come into my life recently. Uh, and the first one is, of course, my my wonderful sparkly pink PSP 2000 that I purchased when I was in Japan. Uh, with the help of Nick Rocks, who, of course, was actually telling me to go for the PSP 3000 so he was very disappointed in my decision. But, you know what? That PSP 3000, the pink one, it didn't sparkle. <laughs> well, not only that, though, but it has those damn scan lines. I can't stand the scan lines. But So, on most of my journeys to Japan, I'll go over there, and I'll be like, I want to come home with games. So I write this little list of the games I want to buy when I'm over there, you know? And going back to this whole collector mentality, that's... that's the recent years have been my DS collection. I, that was the one system that I allowed myself to still have a quote-unquote collection for. So when I went to Japan, the previous time, like, like with, uh, for TGS and whatever, you know, I took over a list of these are the games I want to buy when I'm there. Well, what was really funny was going over this time, spying games held no interest to me anymore. And not that I don't like games, it's just, but it's just like coming home with another stack of games I'm going to put on a shelf and not play until God knows when. That just wasn't exciting to me. So what I did instead was took the money that I had to spend on uh, personal luxury items and I bought a few things that were far more meaningful to me. And one of those was my pink PSP 2000 because I had the original PSP that I bought on launch day for forever, you know. And the UMD drive was dead at this point. And it's the original PSP, so it's very heavy and bulky and stuff. And I bought that 2000, and man, I just fell in love with it all over again. Uh, went, and started going back and playing my PSP games again. And it's been so much fun for that. And then, so if you're, listen, if you're a listener at all to Smart Video Game Fan, one of the podcasts I do regularly, uh, my co-host, Joe... He gets a ridiculous amount of free stuff from our listeners. Like crazy. Um, and so I've been not crying, but I've been kind of like saying how unfair it was in the show and how the fact of all I wanted in life was a pink 3DS, you know, and that, that Joe gets all this free stuff, but I never get anything. So then one of our listeners, Mr. Darren Griffin, uh, who goes by the name Retro... I'm, I'm going to kill this name. Retrocal... Ret- okay, Apocalypse Retrocalypse. Retrocalypse, there we go. I had to say Apocalypse first. Uh, so he got me... He got me. He bought me a pink 3DS. And I felt so, so guilty about him offering that to me. Like Even though Joe... Because Joe's look, Joe's a Joe's a whore. All right, let's just be honest here. He, he he will beg and plead for anything under the sun. But me, you know, I've got I've 
I still have a little bit of pride in my body, not much, but a little bit. So I feel bad about begging for things, but so when this wonderful listener said, hey, I'll get you a 3DS, I was like, no, no, I can't accept that. But he's like, no, 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 seriously, I'll get it for you. So he got it for me, and I've been having like a lot of fun with it. Like, I don't, not, not like game-wise yet, but I'm still kind of just getting into the whole idea of owning a 3DS and kind of using it, and I've been doing a lot of swap note. That's like so much fun. Um, you know, it's not a, not a bad little system. I mean, there are things here and there that I don't, that I wish were better, and this, this D-pad just destroys me if I try to use it, but, but it's very awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm now, I went from being like, meh, if I have a 3DS, so what, to, to, legitimately enjoying having one and being excited to get some games at some point. I mean, I have, I have um, Pac-Man and Galaga Dimensions and uh, Devil Survivor Overclocked, but I haven't had a chance to get into those yet. Japan! Japan. Now, if I repeat anything I said last time, I, I apologize, but, you know, whatever. So, I think when I last stopped off, we were at the part where I was saying the fact that, that I had this girlfriend from Japan, and she was going to be my ticket to getting over there for the first time. This was summer of 2000. And I'm not going to talk about that trip too much because I remember so little of it. Because it was basically my you know, first time going to the country, and so it was almost kind of like an overload of senses being there because everything was brand new, you know? So, so I don't remember too much about that experience. And I can't remember if that was the point where I got to fly first class or not. I think it might have been. Because, yes, because I think the very first trip I took to Japan, um, somebody wanted to switch seats and be together because they had been split up, split up, like a couple or something. So the person at the counter is like, look, we want your seat. If you give us your seat, we'll bump you up to, okay, not first class, but business class. I'm like, all right, sure, whatever, you know. Being bumped up, you never say no to, right? So I did, and man, what, like, you, you, okay, look, if you've never flown international, let me try to paint this picture for you. Take a domestic flight, like you're flying from New York to LA or whatever, Chicago to Dallas or whatever you're doing, okay? Give yourself maybe six inches more leg room, that's international coach. Like, when you first find a national coach, you are appalled at the experience they can expect you to go through for that many hours. Because the flight's a good, like, 12 hours or so to Japan. Especially, I mean, and that's even going from L.A. Like, if you're having a connecting flight, if you're coming from, like, the middle of the country, you got a lot longer flight waiting for you. But that actual, from your desi- from your hub to Japan... It's probably like 12 hours. And, oh my God, coach sucks on international flights. Like you, you just go into it having this idea that it's a long, 
ass flight. You know, they're going to accommodate you with a little bit better accommodations. But no, no, they don't. So, so my very first experience flying internationally was business class. And to give you an idea, when, when we're sitting down in business class, they are bringing around orange juice and champagne. All right. That's, that's already better service than you're going to get for the entire flight in coach. And then for meals, we get like a choice. We get a menu. We get a menu. You don't get a menu in coach. You get microwave dinner A or microwave dinner B. We get a menu. And, and all these different things. We got soba and like ice cream sundae and stuff like that. And we got little packages with that like slippers and a little eye mask, you know. And it was, it was awesome. But terrible at the same time because my very first experience flying internationally would be business class. And that would ruin the entire rest of the flights I would ever have. Except for one time. But um, yeah. So, so I was spoiled from the first first part and so i don't remember much i mean i remember i wrote the shinkansen i went to snk's headquarters in osaka um you know it was just it was it was like i said it was like the sensory overload and so i didn't it was all these experiences just crammed in this one small little week but so when i went there that that time i spoke next to no japanese at all so I was like, you know what, I need to get my Japanese better. I need to get up on this, you know. I need to, you know, I like Japanese. I'm liking it. I want, I want to learn more. I want to be able to speak more. So I get back and I take this college course for, for Japanese. And this is 2000 to 2001. <coughs> well, I'm in this class and I come to find out that another local college is in this thing where they have an exchange school in Osaka and you go there for a month. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try that. And I went and talked to the college and technically it was supposed to be only for students at the college. But the director of the program like, look, you, uh... Well, actually, I don't, you know, at this point, I don't know if I totally just lied to her or not. But what it might have been was on the pretext that, that she said, look, if you're going to start going to this college the next semester, then I'll go ahead and sign you up. Or if she was just like, you know what, I know, I know, whatever, that's fine. So I don't know, but I had to apply for this college. And took like an entrance exam and everything, you know. And the entire reason I was doing this was just to go to Japan for a month. I didn't, I was never going to go to school, you know. But I went to go to Japan, baby. So I did this and I got into whatever I needed to do. So I'm going to Japan for a month. Sweet. I go over and it's, it's, it's so funny because the school I end up at in Japan is a Catholic school. Now, you're, you're going to Japan. You're not thinking you're going to a Catholic school, but it's a, it's a Catholic university over there. Now, when I say Catholic university, I'm saying Catholic in like the loosest sense. Like there was a church there that you could go to if you wanted to, 
but otherwise there was there was very little catholicness to this school uh, but it was saint andrews university you know in uh, southern osaka japan i get hooked up with this host family who ends up being like very well off money wise which would would, would prove to be nice a number of times after that uh, for, for my benefit. Um, but so I'm there, you know, and I've got... I'm there. Uh, got something. I'm there with uh, this class of all oh, about 10 other students or so. And that was... That was like crazy because this was... this You know, I, I had... Yes, I had gone to Japan for that week before. Like a vacation, right? But this was me at least to a small degree, existing in another country. Like living there and experiencing it that way. And it was, it was awesome. It was like, I, I, how do I even explain it? It was, I mean, everything was new. You know, w- you know when I had been there for the week, my girlfriend at the time had planned everything. You know, I had said, oh, I want to do this or do that, whatever, you know. But it was very much a vacation, you know. It was not a, a planned kind of travel agency kind of vacation, but it was still a vacation, and, and this is what we're going to do, and this is what, that's what we're going to do, and stuff like that. Whereas this was a month of me living in Japan, uh, and I could say, you know what, I'm going to school for, for the, the hours I need to go to school, it's lunchtime now. My day is done. I'm just going to hop on a train and go somewhere. That was, that was so awesome. And that was really what got me to fall in love with Osaka because Osaka was the, the city where I started my real Japanese quote-unquote life and where I lived for a while. Um, and that was, that was like the... What do I want to say? That that you know, it, it's 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 not. I can't just sit here and say, "Look, do that," because you know people don't have that option always, and you maybe don't have that choice. Maybe your only way to go to Japan is to go as a, a vacation or a travel agency or whatever. But like, if if you ever have that chance to go to another country, not even just Japan, but any other country, is like an exchange program or or you know a chance to live there for a while. You know, take it, take it. <laughs> you know, you, you will, you will always regret doing not doing that. You will never regret doing it, because even if you look, even if most time you hate it, it it will be a month of an experience that you would not have had otherwise, and that a lot of people that you know would ne- will never have. Um, but a lot of what I would learn about Japan didn't come during that trip. Because it was still a microcosm of, of the country. It was still, yes, it was a month, but it was still a very short look at the country. You know, it wasn't really the real Japan that, that I would end up finding out later on. Um, and people knew you were there for a month. So you were this kind of <laughs> I don't know that I want to say exhibit, but you're an exhibit. 
Like you're, you know, you know, when, when you're, when your local zoo gets the, the pandas for a month from the, from the Chinese zoo that has loaned them to your local place, you know, like, oh, oh, we got to go see the pandas. You go see the pandas. Like, wow, look at the pandas. This is so awesome. Hey, pandas. Yay. You know, and you, you know, a month later they'll be gone. So you're like, oh, look at the, you know, the pandas. You're awesome. Woo. And the pandas are gone in a month. And you're like, oh man, that was pretty awesome. Pandas, pandas, you know. So that's like we were like we were like the pandas, you know. We were we were this exhibit that we had been flown over to the country, dropped off, and we're in this little place, and you can come look at us and poke us and feed us food and whatever. And then in a week will be, a month will be gone, and you're like, ah, oh, the Americans, yay, you know. So you you had that kind of experience. Is a lot of people wanted to talk to you and get to know you because you were a a limited engaged in limited. I can't say the word. Limited engagement kind of thing. Yes. So, I go back. And I'm like, oh man, Japan. Oh, Japan's awesome. I want to go back to Japan. And I just kept thinking about that and kept thinking about that. Went back to the same job I had before. It was working and whatever, you know. And come the next year, I'm like, you know what? F it. I'm going back to Japan for that month. I'm going to do that again. So I talked to the university. And now there's a new person in charge of this program. And it's like, oh, great. This is going to be tough for me. Because the first time I had gone, of course, I had said, why, yes. I am going to be a student at your fine university. I never enrolled, never paid a dime or whatever, you know. So obviously it had been a lie just for me to go on this program. But where I got lucky was the person now running the program had come in kind of last minute at that point. Like, like the person who had been there before, uh, she had just left. And this guy comes in. And so it was very kind of short notice. So she wrote a note to this guy basically saying, look, anybody who applies, let them in. That's it. So I told this guy, hey, um, I went last year. I'd like to go again. And he's like, he reads that note. And he's like, all right, sure, you're going. It's that, that, I totally lucked out. Um, and... There was another guy from my same city who had gone to the program the previous year and was going to do the same thing I was doing. He was going to go back for another year. And one night he calls me and he's like, look, you need to come over and talk to me. So I go talk to him. I want to say this is like in maybe late February, early March. And we're going to be leaving for Japan at the end of May. And he says, look, that, that St. Andrews University... They're going to take one person for a year as part of this exchange. Now, I'm going to apply to go for the year. But if you want to do the year, you should apply too. And we'll see who gets picked. So, at this point, I have a job. But it's not a job that like I'm worried about keeping, you know. It's like a whatever kind of job. And this is, this is back before the economy was what it was now where you might, you know, 
think more rationally about just quitting a job. But I was like, look, I've got no wife, no girlfriend, no children. Um, I, I had actually, I was actually in, a, in an apartment. So the apartment was my big co- commitment. But beyond that apartment, I had pretty much no other commitments going on. So I'm like, there's no reason for me not to try this. And I was like, out of the two of us, it's clear that he would get picked before I would get picked. But you know what? I'm going to try it anyway. So I put in saying like, yes, I'd like to go for the year. So did he. We put our forms in. We come to find out we are both selected to go for a year. They're giving us a scholarship. They're going to pay for all our schooling. They give us enough money for a place to live and some a little bit of money past that, not a whole lot, maybe like $200 past that, but but bare essentials, okay. And so we're both accepted for a year. Now this is, like I said, about two months <laughs> before I'm going to go over. So two months before my trip, I find out I am going to Japan to live there for a year. Now, I come from a middle-class family. And at this point, my dad is long out of the picture. I mean, I can get some money off him if I need to, but he's not like a huge financial resource to me. So I'm basically told that I have two months or less to come up with a year's worth of survival money. Which is crazy. So I basically tell my, tell my roommate, I'm like, look, I'm sorry, but I got to get out of this apartment. Like, I, I'm sorry I'm screwing you on this, but I have got to get out because I need to save as much money as possible and I'm not going to be in this country for a year. So I do that and I start looking at my place and I'm like, you know what? What do I have that I can sell? So I just start hawking as much stuff as I can. So... Between my selling things and the money I am able to get from my parents as, you know, pity money on me, uh, I, I end up with about $7,000. $7,000 to last for an entire year. But now, to be fair, as I said, my, uh, my apartment's going to be paid for. Um, the basic, basic – so how it ends up being is that the apartment's paid for um, – I'm given enough money to pay for basically the basics of utilities. Like, not any kind of air conditioning when it's hot or heating when it's cold, but just the fact of having utilities, period, and uh, a cell phone. So those things are covered by by this. So, really, I'm not that bad off, but, like, you have, you know, food (laughs) and uh, train money and just money for anything else you want when you're living over there. So I'm going to turn the light on. Hang on a second. I'm not, I'm not even pausing this. I'm not going to edit. I'm too lazy. All right. So so, so I killed the $7,000 um, in, in like less than two months for my trip. And then it dawns on me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to Japan to live for a year. A year. Like, okay, a month 
is one thing, right? Like a month is a month, whatever. As bad as it can be, you know that after 30 days are over, you're going home. But it just like all of a sudden kicks in like, wait, I'm going here for a year. Oh my God. I'm kind of like freaking out because at this point, look, I spoke a minimal amount of Japanese. Like enough Japanese that, that I could, you know, survive. I could ask for things. I could find out where a toilet's at. You know, I could express the fact that I'm hungry, that I need to drink, you know. But, but not to go to school in Japan for a year. So I'm like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? So it was very, very freaky. And, and it was this weird, surreal world that I lived in for, for those final like, like two weeks or so. Between that point where I was over the point of worrying about how I was going to survive money-wise in the country and, and leaving, you know, I had that realization that like this is actually happening. But what helped was the fact that I had convinced two of my very close friends to go over with me and to have them do the month-long program, uh, which would kind of be funny because the, the previous year when I went over, the month-long program was very, very easy as far as what, 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 they, what they taught you Japanese-wise. Because it was like, okay, it was a cultural exchange thing where it's like you come over for a month, you learn some Japanese, you get into some Japanese culture, you know, things like that. And so we had two kind of laid-back teachers. So it was very casual. We just learned basics of Japanese kind of stuff. But so this following year when my friends go over, all of a sudden this class becomes super hardcore. And they're learning like, like they have to learn like a whole bunch of kanji and, and it's like crazy level of experience. So it was kind of funny that I talked to them and doing that and then they kind of wanted to punch me for it because it was very difficult. But so... Going back over, um, I had these two friends with me. So that was kind of a really, really nice thing to have for that first month. And it ended up being funny too because one of my two friends got the same host family I had gotten. So I got some benefits from that too, you know, going to eat and whatever. Um, so I kind of found like three stages of being there. So like the first month, you're back in that vac- that vacation mode. Like, everything's so awesome and so exciting. And you're like, yeah, I'm in Japan, baby. I'm living here. Yeah, this is sweet, you know. All these fun, exciting new things and stuff. This is going to be awesome. Second month rolls around. And amplified by the fact that my friends are now gone. Second month is a point when you realize this is real. You're like, wait, that month's gone by, and now I'm not going home. Everybody else went home, I'm still here. Okay, this is now a serious thing, and I am actually living here. So that was the second month, kind of, the, the, the realization you have is the fact that it's not a vacation. Because, you know, a week, two weeks, a month, those are vacations. Two months is not a vacation. Two months is something much longer. And, and that, that's when that realization sets in to you. Third month, it's kind of the third stage. And that's where I hated Japan. Hated it so much. I hated living there. I hated being there. I just wanted to go home. Because that's the, that, that's the point when you're tired of not having food you're used to. You're tired of not having television you're used to. 
You're tired of not having places that you're really used to. You're tired of going wherever you go and having to struggle to ask or say the simplest of things. Like, you want to go to a store and you want to buy a hammer. And it just it's a challenge just to go to a store and buy a hammer. And I'm sitting there and it's like, why can't somebody just speak English to me? Seriously, like, it, it, it's so frustrating. Like, I just, every single day I'm having to speak this language I don't speak. And everything is a challenge. And I just want to speak English. I just want to go out and be understood and understand. I want to pick up a newspaper and be able to just read it, you know. So that's how, what, that, that third month is just where you, you at least for me, and I talked to some other people who have kind of agreed with me, but uh, the third month is just that point where you're just fed up. You're really fed up with everything. So, like, I think for me, that third month was the hardest. And once I got past that was when it just became, this is where I live. For good or for bad, for, for difficult or easy, this is where I live. This is my home now. You know, yes, for that year, but you don't you don't think about that at that point. You're just like kind of like this is now my home. And if you can get past those first three months, I think that's when you can make it. So I think those first three months are are where your emotions just kind of run wild, and you have to get used to not being in an environment in a world that you're used to, and that's the hardest point. And if you can get past that third month, you'll be okay. So. Instead of talking about like specific instances, well, I'm gonna talk about some of them, but I want to just kind of give overall like like feelings I've had about about living in Japan. And the first thing is like I I love living there. And before I kind of got into the idea that before you go to Japan, there's this kind of mentality you have, especially coming from position that I'm in, or many of you probably are in. You know, if you like. Gaming or anime, manga, music, whatever. It's, you know, the quote-unquote otaku mecca, right? You know, nobody in America understands me, understands my moe, moe, lowly love fashion stuff uh, with the J-pop and the the anime and whatever. So I'm going to go to Japan because in Japan, everybody everybody watches the anime and everybody reads the manga and everybody's going to love me over there. And all the schoolgirls are going to, like, go crazy. But, you know, you know. So, you're like, America, I mean, America doesn't understand me. Japan's going to understand me. You know, you have that, that weird mentality going on. So, way past that. At this point, way, way past that. Because, really, all novelty of that had worn off for me at that point. Japan was just a different place. But I, I love, like, legitimately love being in Japan, um, and there's a few there's a few reasons. Not the biggest, but the safety you feel in Japan is crazy. And and you know we have to be fair that there is crime in Japan. Yes, there absolutely is. But the the difference I feel. Being in Japan versus being in America 
is night and day. And for some people, some people don't care about that. But like for me, that's a very, very big deal. Like I was at my school. I left my $400 digital camera on the table in this common room. Didn't even think about it. Came back hours and hours later. It was still sitting exactly where it was at, you know. And no, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to say, like, I'm not trying to disparage my fellow Americans saying somebody would instantly have stolen it or whatever. But that's the kind of world, like, like you just, you, you forget something somewhere and your first thought isn't, oh, my God, somebody's going to steal it. You know, like, it, it just, I, I've, there's never been a point in Japan where I felt uncomfortable or unsafe being anywhere, even even in a dark alley in the middle of the night, you know, in what are supposedly the bad parts of town, I've never once felt anything but, but security being in that country. And there really is a difference in feeling. It's almost kind of just like, you know, you talk about nostalgia and, and whether or not our nostalgic feelings are, are true or not, but you kind of feel just like, I don't know, like when I was a kid in America, like things felt different than they do now. I mean, they, they, weren't, they weren't necessarily super, super safe, but you felt safer than you did now. Like, just people nowadays, you just never know. For some reason, you just never know. And, and I don't know if that's the media putting this idea in our head or if it's actual truth, but you just feel like you never know if you can trust other people. And in Japan, I just, I, I, it's, it's whatever. You know what? It's no big deal. And, and it's that part feels awesome, but it also just is like, I love that setup of being able to hop on a train, go somewhere, walk to my destination, you know, do my whatever I need to do, walk back to the train, get on that train, take it back to my home station, get off, walk home. Like, I love that lifestyle. I don't, like, my year of living in Japan and not having a car was bliss to me. And some of, you, some of you people out there, maybe you live in like New York or whatever, you could say, hey, you have that same lifestyle. Sure. It, I'm not saying it doesn't exist in America. I'm just saying it's, it's much, much harder to find in America versus in Japan where you can totally live a life without any kind of owning a vehicle and still have what you consider to be a... a, a uh, like, you don't feel like you have restrictions, you know? I mean, there's still places that are kind of hard to get to that you might want to go to, but you don't feel like you have the restrictions you do in America. Like, I would never, ever try to live in Los Angeles here without a car, so. And just, I don't know, like, just a feeling. There's just this feeling in Japan that is different um, as a country, as a people. And I'm not saying, I, I don't want anybody to think I'm saying that they're perfect, and I'm not, or that they're, like, super, super awesome, because... Japan has just as many issues as America does. They're just in different ways, you know. Never, ever, and that, that's, that, and I think I might have mentioned this before, but that was one of the biggest things I learned in my trips was you end up having a better appreciation for your own country when you go to other countries. Not because those other countries are necessarily bad, but you get to see the good and the bad. You know, versus just being this weird fantasy in your brain about what it's going to be, you get the, that, that reality. And you say, okay, this part of Japan's good and better than America. This part of Japan is not as good. And I like America better here. So it's, it's, it helps you appreciate it more. And, and I do understand that. And I'm not saying that Japan's perfect, but 
I, I just like the, I like the atmosphere and I like the feeling. But like anything, you know, in my year of living there, near the end of my time, I was ready to go home. Of course, once I got home, I was ready to go back to Japan. But, you know, I kind of felt like, all right, I love living here, but I need to go kind of recharge my Americanism again, you know, my, my American qualities again. Um, uh, so there was a few things that I kind of found funny uh, in going to school in Japan. And it will either be funny anecdotes for you or there will be great lessons if you are to go to Japan. And the first thing is, if somebody tells you that you're going to do something, never believe them unless an actual plan has been made. So I'm over there and I'm at this college. And so there's a bunch of, of People, you know, so I'm at this college when I'm, I'm a few years older than college age. Not, not, not very far. Still in my, still in my mid twenties, but, um, so people were, you know, I had no problem kind of getting along with most people that were there because they were kind of that still that same age group, you know, I mean, like I wasn't that far removed from the life that they were in. Um, so I was making all these friends and when you're a foreigner in Japan, uh, it can be very, very easy to meet people because you are exciting to people. You know, like if you're in Tokyo, maybe it's a little bit different. Tokyo has a lot of foreigners, but if you're anywhere else in Japan, um, you're exotic and people want to talk to you. So I had all these people who were talking to me and so I, we'd meet like, hey, yeah, I'm such and such. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm such and such. Hey, wow, you know, oh, do you like this, this, and this? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know. Oh, and then, like, something will come up, and they'll be like, uh, uh, you know, oh, oh, you like movies? Yeah, I love movies. Oh, so do I. Hey, that's awesome. Oh, did you hear about that new movie? Uh, you know, the new Batman's coming up. Oh, yeah, I want to see that. Me too. Oh, hey, we should go sometime. Yeah, let's go see the Batman, right? So, when you're an American... If I meet you, and one of the two of us says, let's go see Batman, and the other person says, yes, let's do that, right? That's the formulation of a plan, at least at the start of it. Like, you, like I feel like there is some initial commitment existing there that says the two of us are interested in going to see Batman together. Right? So if I called you up and said, hey, when did you want to go see Batman? You would not be surprised by my asking you that question. Because as, as Americans, or as Westerners even, I don't mean to leave, leave out you other English-speaking people. If you've gotten to the point where you've said to somebody, hey, let's do this. You have made enough of a connection with them that that is a legitimate option in your brain. Like, I, I know how ridiculous it sounds to me explaining this, but I want to make this clear because 
if we've said that, we've said that because we consider that to be a potential option we are willing to take part in. If I say to you, let's go see Batman, I'm saying it because I am interested in the idea of seeing that movie with you. Right? We're all in agreement of this? It is not at all true in Japan. And that's one of the first things you have to learn. Because I did not understand that when I went there. Because you see, Japanese have this problem. <laughs> they are damn dirty liars. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But they are liars because they don't ever want to, like, I feel like they don't, they don't, they don't want to be rude, right? They don't want to hurt your feelings. So just by nature, they're like, oh, yeah, we should go do this. And as an American, again, as I just, as I just made clear, if, if somebody says to me, we should go do this, I'm expecting that, that they are con- seriously considering that idea. Because otherwise, they would not say it, right? So I'm there by the first month or two, right? And I'm meeting all these people. I'm getting all these things about like, hey, we should do this. Oh, we should do that. Oh, we should go eat sometime. Oh, hey, you're awesome. We should go do this. You know, I'm getting a lot of that from people. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I'm like, this is awesome. I have made like 80 new friends in the first month of living here. Like, I'm going to have no problem with being lonely over here. And then I never heard from 99% of those people ever again. And I'd be like, oh, hey, we were talking about going to see that movie? And they're like, oh, oh, you were wanting to do that? Really? You know? Like, it's, 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 it's this weird... It's Japan, Japanese is so weird because you will just like lie to people because you don't want to tell them the truth, right? It's kind of like food. If you get food and you don't you don't think it's good, you don't say it's not good. You're like, oh yeah, it's great, and they just never you just like never go to that restaurant again, right? Or you just never ask for that dish, dish again. You don't tell people, um, this is really isn't that good, you know? Or you have choto, right? Choto is like. Eh, or kind of, a little bit. So, so people be like, hey, are you busy Friday? Eh, chotto. And it's kind of being like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, you know, like, like you, you just can't come out and say, I'm busy. Like, you can't even say that. Not saying you don't want to go with them. You can't even say that you're busy. So, Japan's level of politeness is ridiculous sometimes to the point that People will say to you, you know, like, like, like these offers of, 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 of things that you're going to be going to do, but they don't actually mean for you to do them. It's just politeness. And as a, you know, dirty guy gene, I didn't understand that at all. So that was hard. Because here I am thinking I've made all these friends, people who are wanting me to go out and do things with them, and then... Probably in that third month, maybe that's why it's so hard. Is you come to the realization that none of these people really were interested in talking to you. 
and you were, you know, you were that panda. And yeah, the first month or two, you were that novelty. And they wanted to go see you. And like, oh, the pandas, oh, look at the pandas, you know. But by the third month, you're still there. And they come to the zoo and like, wait, panda? Panda, you're still here? Oh, I thought you were going back. Oh, well, I actually, like, I kind of came to the zoo to see the other things. Like, I mean, yeah, you're still cute and all, but I kind of already saw you. And I'm kind of, like, over you now, you know? I was really, I'm really here for, like, the other exhibits. You know, I'm, this is, wow, this is kind of awkward, Panda. See, I didn't, I didn't know you were going to still be here, Panda, you know? Wow, this is, you know, that's, like, like that's, that's how it felt. And that was really, really hard. Because, you know, I'm used to the West. And I'm used to the West where if people aren't interested in being your friend, they have no problem in just ignoring you or not talking to you or or just saying like look no offense but you know i i don't like i'm i'm going to get you know i'm i'm leaving all right bye you know they have no problem finding a reason to not be talking to you any longer if they don't want to keep this conversation up but japan with that like fake politeness it's so confusing but okay I did make friends, and I found people who were legitimately interested in being my friend. Um, and those people were very, very important to me for that year. Uh, they meant all, so much to me. I made some really, really good friends being there. Uh, but at this one point, I get invited out for dinner. Across the street from the school, there is this, like, izakaya. And, man, you, you, like, okay. All right, we got bars over here, right? And bars sometimes have bar food. But bar food in Japan is, like, a whole nother level. America can't even touch that kind of stuff. So I get invited to Izakaya. And it's me. And it's about, oh, let's say, kind of like 14 people. Or so, including me. Something like that. Very, very decently sized party. And I'm kind of there, and I don't I don't really know most of them, you know, but they invited me out, and I'm like, well, I haven't been invited out very much, so I'll go do this. And I'm sitting there, and I'm poor, all right? I'm poor, okay? You know, I have my $7,000 to live on for a year, and that's it. That's for everything. So I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to have a chance to make any more money being here because I'm technically not even allowed to have a job. So I've got to make this money count. And it's like, if it had been a friend, like a really close friend I was with, I wouldn't mind spending the money and, and getting drinks and food and whatever. But I'm like, you know what? I just want to kind of be here and socialize a little bit. And, I'm, and look, I'm, I'm not, I've never been good at socializing in the first place, you know? Like I said before, I grew up on my own, uh, single parent household, and my mom was at work most of the time, so I was alone. So I've always been that kind of shy person. Uh, so socializing has never been my strong suit. So I'm at this bar. I'm sitting there, and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna order a drink. I have my drink, 
you know, and then, then, then whatever. And so everybody else is like ordering drink after drink after drink. And people who have been to Japan, you'll know where this story is going, all right? <laughs> but so I'm there. I have, I have my drink, right? No S at the end, my drink. Everybody else is ordering drinks and all this food. And they're like, oh, Eric, do you want to try some of this? Do you want to eat some of that? And, I, and me, again, being American, being Western, being used to the social situations I have been used to, right? What happens? You go to a bar. You order your drinks. You order your food. Your friends order their drinks. They order their food. Maybe they're like, hey, I got these fries. Do you want a fry? You're like, thank you very much. You take a couple fries from them, you know, that's all. You're not really eating off their food. So I'm coming into this with these same expectations because this is my first real time being out with a lot of people. Where, you know, other than like my host family where, of course, the host family was paying, so there was no concern over money. So I'm like, all right, I have my drink. I'm going to get out of here owing like 10 bucks, something like that, right? You know, that's my thinking. So we're going on and there's food and there's drinking and everything like that. And I'm thinking like a little bit of food here and there, but not, not too much, you know, because I don't, I don't want to be that guy, you know, it's like, well, if I take too much of this person's food and they're paying for it, I don't want to feel bad about that, right? I'm not touching stuff because, again, dirty guy gene, I don't know the way things work. Nobody told me the way things work. So, let me get to the end of the night. The bill comes. So, I'm ready. I'm like, all right. All right. And this is Japan, right? I don't know. Tip. So, sweet. My drink. Tax. Ten bucks. Send in. You know, I'm good to go. They're like, look at the bill. Doing little calculations and stuff. person next to me looks at me and like, okay, your share is $60. And I'm like, yeah. Wait, what? 60 bucks? See, what I didn't realize, and this is a very good tip for any of you who go to Japan, before you get in the situation that I was in and didn't understand, here's how it works in Japan. When you're out with your friends, especially... Like a more casual restaurant, not 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 like a family restaurant. Cause that's a whole different subject. But like, if you're in a place where you're like ordering things off a menu like this, you're drinking drinks and whatever. You don't get your food. You don't order your food. The group orders group food. The group orders drinks for the group. At the end of the night or day, or whatever it is, as the case may be, whatever the group's total is, that gets evenly split among everybody. I did not know this. So I, being poor, went into the situation thinking I would be getting out with about $10 of a bill. Instead, I'm paying $60. i am paying 60 I think it was 60 might have been even more than that. $60, let's say. $60 for my one drink. Because stupid me, I didn't order any food. I didn't need any food. I didn't order more than one drink. 
because I was thinking I was paying only for whatever I myself personally had. But instead, I am paying an evenly div divided split of the final bill. That's how it works in Japan. So let me warn you. <laughs> if you go to Japan and ever get in a situation like that, eat the goddamn food. Order drinks. Say to the person, hey, we didn't order any of this kind of food. I want to try this. Make sure you order some of that. You know, jump in there and, and get your voice said because at the end of the night, you're going to play an even split of that bill no matter what you had to eat or drink. Now, I'm not saying that's 100% of every single experience, but that is typically the common way. Now, like when I was over there most, most recently, I met up with, of course, Nick Rocks and the two Dans, and we went to a video game themed bar and we had our our own drinks and us being for gaijin we paid for our own damn stuff right because that's the way we're used to so that's fine but when you're with japanese people they don't think that way they think whatever the final bill is we're gonna all split it and there you go so that was a huge like it's such a small thing it seems like but that was such a huge culture shock to me was was kind of understanding that um, you know what? Let's do another letter. Let me break up the uh, Japanese talk here. It's from Jake. Email, I should say, not letter. Just wanted to drop you a line and let you know that I'm enjoying your show considerably. The topic of depression is very near and dear to my heart. So hearing someone eerily mirror some of my own experiences and thoughts on the issue is a real treat. <laughs> After typing that... I realize how bizarre that must come off. Regardless, the listening experience was like a strange remix of how I've always felt about how to approach others with depression as well as dealing with it myself. In my personal experiences, the toughest part about getting above depression, you can never quite get past it, is that after having to be such a prominent part of your life, there's a level of comfort in those waves of emotions. That comfort is a tough beast to recognize and rise above. Uh, enough about that. I just really appreciate the show in general and the last episode in particular. Keep releasing them and I'll keep listening to them. Uh, before the second part of the email, I want to say that, that, that that's a very good point. And kind of like what I said last time was the fact that... <coughs> sorry. Once you have these emotions, that kind of becomes you. For good or bad, it becomes you. And in a weird way, like I said before, the fact that as much as I did not like being depressed, it was also that piece of me that said that if the depression was not there any longer, I would not still be the me that I was supposed to be, you know? So it is really, very strange that how... I, I was going to say, like, what's the... Um, what is it, Helsinki Syndrome or whatever? Where, like, you uh, get to know your... You know, you're kidnapped, and you get to know your kidnapper and kind of grow a bond to them. Like, I wonder if it's the same kind of thing. Is is like, you grow this bond. Like, you get beat down enough by depression that you kind of grow a bond to it so that, that if that depression is not there any longer, you miss that feeling. So it's a very in interesting topic. But uh, anyway, the second half of the email. On to a general question. I'm a huge fan of Asian cinema, 
But over the years, I could never get a proper handle. I could never properly get a handle on anime. I'll pop in and out of the genre every couple of years or so, but I always feel like I'm just fumbling around in the dark trying to find something that could appeal to me. Do you recommend any resources or communities for anime criticism that don't indulge in fanboy excess or condescending pontification? In my experiences, the sites I've come across either demand obsessive familiarity with minute with the minute, or they just lack a sense of humor. Any tips would be appreciated. Keep up the great work with all of your podcasting endeavors, Jake. Well, Jake, uh, I am sorry to say no. I have no recommendations for you. Um, unfortunately, and I want to be careful here because I don't want to disparage a whole group of people. Um, Western anime fandom is kind of a strange point, I feel. And I could be wrong because I have not been deeply into it for a while, but this is part of the reason why, is that it it almost feels like it is that kind of... So, okay. I know, I'm jumping all over here, but video games, right? Video games started out as hardcore. Right? You kind of... you If you played gaming, you were kind of a hardcore fan of gaming. And as time went on, it got more casual. And so different options opened up. So you can still find those hardcore segments of the fandom, but at the same time, if you are more casual, you can find other places and resources that support you in being casual. So that that fandom has, has broadened as time has gone on. I almost feel like anime fandom has shrunk Because I feel like back in the day, when anime first got popular, there were all these kind of genres and all these kinds of types. And it wasn't just this one certain thing. But as we've seen in Japan, in a weird way, the broadness of anime has kind of shrunk over time. And I mean, there's still things like Studio Studio Ghibli stuff, you know, or or, uh, was it Noitama? Things that kind of appeal to a broader range of people, but it almost feels like it's becoming the opposite of gaming, whereas gaming is trying to open itself up more to everybody. Anime is having to go more and more niche to continue its support that it needs. Uh, so I kind of feel the same way. Is is that I don't know of any good resources because I feel like every place that's anime related does require that like heavy level of knowledge like you can't just go into it casually and discussions kind of get into like oh well this 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 is that and if you don't know all of those you're a noob or you know you're just you're you know you need to learn about everything and stuff like that so it's anime is so tough and i feel bad about that being the case but it's it's just so hard to be casual and be in the anime. Like, I almost feel in a way that, that it's easier to get into manga at this point than it is anime. Because it feels like there's still that, that ability in manga to have all these different genres and all these different types of readers and markets and stuff like that. And again, I said that, that could be completely unfair. But that's just a feeling I have. So I unfortunately don't have a good recommendation for you. 
uh, in terms of that. All right, we're way at time-wise. Let's see. We are at one minute. No, one minute. One hour and 23. Uh, let's see. What was my last Miranda Sweet Shop? Oh, last time was 144, and then 127, 124. So you know what? I might end it here. Um, there's still more to talk about J- Japan-wise. Uh, so, you know, I can save it for a future episode. Uh, but I just kind of like wanted to get a chance to come back and do this again. And as always, like, I never know if these are exciting or not. Like, seriously, like, I, I do this show. And then when I'm done, I'm just kind of like, was this interesting in the least? So I don't know. So hopefully this was. Um, you know, because I think I wanted to start kind of getting into some of the more personal aspects of living in Japan and my experience with Japan. And so hopefully I did that. Uh you know, for future shows, I still have... Uh, so here are my show notes. I have um, Weird Parts of Japan, which is that's a whole show in itself, probably. Uh, country is falling apart. That's very interesting. Yes. It, uh, a lack of heating. That's a fun topic. Uh, customer service, good versus bad, indeed. Um, so you know what? I'm going to end it here, I think, uh, because I've got work I should be doing anyway. So I, I really was supposed to have been doing work in this last uh, hour uh, and a half. But instead, I wanted to do a podcast for you wonderful listeners. So I did. So so apologies for my shutting it off. and be a little bit sooner than I maybe should be. Uh, but you know what? Japan is such a huge topic that I can do way more shows on it as anyway. So it's no big deal. So I'm going to end it here and say... Uh, Thank you for listening to the latest Miranda Sweet Shop. Uh, as always, if you want to contact me, uh, please do so. If you have any questions, not well, questions, comments, uh, feelings about what we've talked about, what I've talked about on the show, please drop me a note. Uh, the contact information is in the show notes or on the website uh, radio.morningproject.com. And uh, the next show will be, of course, Warning a Huge Podcast. It'll be coming up in the... Let's see, when will that be coming up? So the last show we did came out the 13th. So that was the 10th. So hopefully we'll be doing a next warning. Uh, Not this coming up Saturday, but the Saturday after that. That'd be the week before PAX East. And let me just say, if you are going to PAX East, I'm going to be there. Not only can you meet the infamous Shidoshi at PAX East, <laughs> but you can go see my panel. Not, not my personal panel, but the panel I'm going to be on. And that is Press XY. Transgender Issues in Gaming. The uh, official explanation, whether it's Street Fighter, Guilty Gear, Resident Evil, or Final Fantasy, video games have had a long history of transgender characters. You'll find no shortage of transgender people working in the industry, too. Join a panel of game designers, writers, and fans 
to learn about some of the most interesting characters in gaming and the impressive lineage of transgender game makers. We'll also discuss the impact of sex and gender in blockbuster games that let players choose their sex. And it says, panelists include, and I'm going to apologize if I butcher any of these names here, Charles Battersby, the uh, PC Xbox department lead for Player Affinity, Chris Avalone, creative director from Obsidian Entertainment, Rebecca Heinemann, family member, Interplay, Janelle Allen Jackway, I know it's script her last name, a lead level designer for uh, World of Darkness MMO and uh, CCP North America, Morgan McCormick, the owner of uh, site Trans Labyrinth, and yours truly, Shidoshi, the news editor for EGM Media. So I'm going to be a panelist on this uh, wonderful panel at PAX East talking about transgender issues in video gaming. So uh, as some of you may or may not know, I have, uh, I don't want to say studied, that's maybe the wrong word, but I am, um, I am very outspoken in conversations about equality in video gaming, and I think that it's a very important discussion to have about how gaming should be inclusive to everybody, and not just white heterosexual males. Uh, no offense to all of you white heterosexual males. But um, gaming needs to be more inclusive, and this is a, you know, we had a thing recently with the fighting game community and the, you know, the misogyny in that, and that discussion and everything. But I think, in general, video gamers are really great people. And I think that in this hobby, we have a really good chance to uh, bring up topics of inclusiveness and bring up topics of, you know, all of us, no matter who we are or what we are, being okay. And, you know, we're all gamers, right? At the end of the day, we all play games. Or um, Maybe not all of you listening to this are gamers. I, I don't want to speak for any of you, but, you know... Whatever it is, is that, as I said earlier, we need to stop. We need to stop finding reasons to divide ourselves. You know, and I think as part of that, we need to acknowledge the fact that diversity is good, and we need more diversity in things like gaming. And so that's part of what we're going to be talking about this panel at PAX East is the transgender issue because you know we there's been so much conversation coming up about um the homosexuality you know with mass effect 3 finally acknowledging homosexual relationships and the whole discussion about you know how are gay lesbian and bisexual characters um represented in, in gaming and other media and making sure that we we We'll let people know that they are important and they should be included in the topic as well. So as part of that, the transgender issue is not always discussed as much as it should be. So that's kind of the reason why uh, we're doing this panel. And as as many some of you may know, you know I've covered a lot of this t- 
topic, I've talked you know about poison uh, <laughs> to ridiculous degree at this point. Uh, so I feel honored as being one of the speakers on this panel. And so if you're going to be at PAX East, uh, I am begging you to come see our panel. It's going to be very, very interesting. And unfortunately, we are up against BioWare, one of their panels, and a few other big things. So I am concerned <laughs> about how many people we'll have at our portal panel. But um, you can find us on Facebook at uh, PressXY. For sure that you'll find us. And you can go to the PAX, uh, PAXsite.com to find out uh, when our panel is. is. It's uh, 3 p.m. on Friday. Or you can drop me a line and let me know if you want to know more information about it. But if you're going to be at PAX East, uh, please come to the panel or at least say hello to me if you see me there. Uh, it's kind of funny because at, at GDC, I had somebody come up to me and be like, hey, are you, uh, are you Shidoshi? And I'm like, Yeah. And they're like, I love your podcasts. And it's kind of like, it's so weird because like, wait, for all things I do, you know, this person recognized me from the podcasts, And that was, that was pretty awesome. I, I really felt great about that. Um, and I had somebody else say that they saw me at another event, but they weren't sure if they should come up and say hello. So if, if, you, if you recognize me somewhere at PAX East or E3 or whatever, uh, if you actually do recognize me, Please do not hesitate to say hello. Uh, do not feel like uh, you are bothering me. I mean, you know, with the exception of like, if, like, if I'm in an interview, then obviously don't bother me at that point. But otherwise, even if I'm eating or whatever, please come up, say hello. Um, I greatly appreciate that. You know, I, I love I love the fact that people support this podcast or Warning or smart video game fan or they work in EGM or whatever. So I am never ever hesitant to say hello to people. So, do that. But anyway. Anyway. I'm done. This is the end of this show. This has been uh, episode four. I don't have any fancy name for it. It's episode four. Of Miranda's Sweet Shop. As always, thank you for listening. And uh, I will see you next time.